Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here are your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories, and I am your host, Fred, and that excellent music is, of course, by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Uh, this week, we're continuing our series focusing on uh, artists who have been to, come from, passed through the uh, National Audio Theater Festivals, and the guy we're talking to today has actually has quite a history with Nadif, um, which Fish, uh, Richard Fish, uh, has a lot of audio credits to his name, uh, quite a talent, and uh, well, we're actually going deep into the um, archives, what PC did uh, many years ago called Hayward Sanitarium. We're going to play uh, part two of it. There actually were 10 parts that are made, so we'll hear a little bit more about Hayward when we talk to Rich Fish later in the show, but for now, enjoy episode two of Hayward Sanitarium. It may be weird to start on episode two of a series, but actually this episode stands alone pretty well. Um, has a lot of tension and a great plot that resolves within the first 30 minutes. All you really need to know about the series is that uh, it's set at a sanitarium in Maine and has a doctor who's moved to the area who's investigating some of its strange patients. Uh, Hope you enjoy episode two, Hayward Sanitarium. There are some areas of the human mind and indeed of the world we live in that were never meant for investigation. There are always those who delve into the darker worlds of knowledge, and many pay with their sanity for their interest. Some of these unfortunates are taken in by the Hayward Foundation, an organization that studies paranormal experiences and their effects on humanity. It is cases such as these that are sent to a restored mansion in a small coastal town in Maine, a center for the care and study of the insane. Since the 1920s, this place has been known as the Hayward Sanitarium. Come in. Ah, Gordon. Well, I'm sorry to bother you, Atwater, but there's a new twist to the Casador case. It's right up your alley, so I thought I'd ask your advice. That would be Maria Casador, right? Yes, the, um, Vermont vampire. Ah, yes. I I believe you remember the newspaper stories. Yes, the tabloids had a field day with it. Sexy bloodsucker kills dozens. The Foundation really had to work to get her here. Every institution in the country wanted a chance to observe such an unusual patient. Oh, she shows none of the symptoms that accompany this form of delusion. Mm. Also, the framework of the delusion itself is very complex. She has abandoned the traditional supernatural explanation of vampirism in favor of a scientific rationale. Mm. You mentioned a new twist? Yes, yes. It's, it's a relatively new development in the case, Richard. Two weeks ago, the patient began having odd dreams, so I put her on the EEG. Her brainwaves showed some unusual patterns. I showed them to Dr. McLeod. And what did he say? He's never seen anything like them. Here, look for yourself. I haven't either. The right brain activity is almost overwhelming in comparison to the left. Almost as if the one side is dormant. Uh, Tell me, did you double-check for equipment malfunction? Yes. The diagnostics showed all systems were functioning within normal parameters. Does she remember the dreams themselves? Well, she claims not to, and she won't allow me to hypnotize her. I wondered if you knew of a way to get her to open up. Well, there's something I used once before. 
But I'd have to conduct the interview myself. Is that a problem with you, Gordon? Oh, no, of course not. I, I think you'll find her quite fascinating. <laughs> Actually, she's so sophisticated, sometimes I almost believe her myself. She must be quite persuasive to sway a skeptic like you, Gordon. I'll have to watch myself. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll be in the observation room doing it for you. Hmm. Come in. Hi, guys. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? No, I just dropped in to get Richard's advice on something. Are you all set for your trip to Newfoundland, Halley? Yeah, I'm on the way out the door. I came to say goodbye to you two. I knew you were leaving soon, but I didn't realize you were going this morning. It's at least a nine-hour drive to Cape Tormentine. I want to get there as early in the evening as I can. Well, is the rest of your team already there? Yes, they got there on Friday to start setting up the equipment. Well, how long do you expect it to take? No more than a couple of weeks, I hope, though you never know what we might dig up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Richard, I was wondering what you're doing with Dermot. Well, he's not nearly as violent as he was the first time I talked with him. In fact, I'm thinking about decreasing his medication. Progress is slow, but I think he's starting to trust me a bit more. Are you sure that's a good idea, Richard? Dr. Chandler seems to think that he's completely unstable without large doses of levelance. Well, I agree that O'Brien is unstable, but I believe it's no longer necessary to keep him on such massive doses. I've conferred with Dr. McLeod, and he says it's worth a try. I'll leave you two to talk shop. Right. I gotta get going. See you later. Well, I should get busy as well. Rounds to make, you know. Goodbye, Hallie. Bye, Hallie. Have a good trip. Uh, about the Casador case, Gordon, I've got some free time this afternoon, if that's convenient. Well, it's all right for me, but I'm afraid it won't do. Well, why not? Well, we have to wait for the patient to wake up, old man. Vampires don't rise till the sun goes down. <laughs> See you tonight. Dinner time. Hi. Hi, Emily. You're running a little late tonight, aren't you? Yeah, things are a little crazy on one of the other wards. We had to do a shakedown and restraint in the West Hall. Uh, <laughs> that's to be expected, I guess. You know, things are a little bit more wild when the uh, moon is full. <laughs> yeah, we better hurry up and get the food out. I imagine you can take it from here. I'll be back for the cart when I come down to make the medication run. Okay. Oh, by the way, you need to unlock the one-way room for a session. Dr. Fox and Dr. Atwater will need it. Oh. Is that possible, Robert? Oh, sure, I, I guess. They'll be working with the girl in 26. Uh, 26? I wasn't notified about it, but... Um, they set it up this afternoon. It's all okay. All right, I'll see to it. We'll have the trays ready when you get back. Okay, bye, guys. Bye, bye Emily. Emily. All right, I'll do odd numbers. Oh, wait a minute, I took the tray to her last time. Uh, are, you your turn. are you two still scared of going to the end of the hall? She doesn't bite, you know. Are you kidding? She's locked up. What are you worried about? Look, she gives me the creeps, man. I did it last time. It's, it's his turn. If you're going to be that way, I'll take her tray down. Jesus, you'd think she was Count Dracula or something. She is spooky. Good evening, Robert. Uh, good evening. Here's your dinner, ma'am. No, thank you. I'm not hungry tonight. Oh, you really should try and eat something, miss. You haven't had anything to eat in four days. Don't waste your time worrying about me. I'm just fine. Well, I'll just leave this here in case you change your mind. Mm. I'll be back in a bit. Dr. Fox should be in to see you soon. Thank you, Robert. You really are a sweet boy. Huh. Be a dear and turn out that hall light, will you? You know how sensitive my eyes are. Yeah, sure.
I'll be monitoring everything from out here, Richard. I'm quite anxious to see the method you described. It sounds most intriguing. Supposedly, she hasn't eaten in nearly four days, yet she maintains excellent health. I suspect the orderlies aren't checking her trays closely enough, and she's sneaking food. Hmm, interesting. Perhaps she's projecting the vampire image by abhorring normal sustenance. Oh, that's what I would think. She goes to any length necessary to make her delusions appear as real to those around her as they are to herself. It's amazing how complicated the whole fantasy is. Does she show any sign of split personalities? Well, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? But it's very strange. It's as if she's lost her own identity in making the alternate self so complete. Her vampire persona has total control of her psyche at all times. The self who perpetuates the fantasy is unrecognized. Completely ignored by the conscious mind. So she would be unaware of such actions as, say, concealing the fact that she's eating, to make other people believe in her fantasy. She does these things in a kind of sleepwalking mode. Is that what you're suggesting? The only other possibility is that she is aware of all her actions, and her ability to lie is beyond the depths to which normal analysis can delve. Hmm. Of course, there is another case scenario. What's that? Something I overlooked. Well, she could be telling the truth, Richard. She could actually be a vampire. <laughs> But seriously, she can catch you quite off guard. Don't let her deceive you. Her cruelty knows no bounds. Her last internment was at the Willard Hospital in Baltimore. She convinced them of her sanity, and then after they released her. She ruthlessly slayed well over twenty individuals. She could be the most dangerous patient to be ever held here. Show extreme caution. Miss Cassador, I'm Richard Atwater. Doctor Fox thought it might be a good idea if you and I got to know each other. Would that be all right with you? Isn't that? Just lovely of Doctor Fox to think of me. I'm delighted to make your acquaintance, Richard. Are you a psychiatrist also? I've never thought of Gordon as one to arrange blind dates. Well, I am a doctor. I've been asked by Doctor Fox to look into some of the strange points in your case. Strange? Come now, darling. Let's not mince words.、Uh, to be honest, Miss Cassador, I would like to examine some of the physical manifestations of your case. Sleeping only by day, for instance, or your lack of appetite, Doctor Fox is beginning to believe that there may be a pathological basis for some of your problems. So I'm diseased now, Doctor. Careful, it might be catching. That's not precisely what I meant, Miss Cassador. Maria. What I mean, Maria, <laughs> is that your vampirism may have a medical as well as a psychological basis. Many doctors think that the vampire legend was actually based on people who suffer from a disease called porphyria. Yes, some of the symptoms are bloodshot, light-sensitive eyes, and highly photoallergenic skin. That's not what I have. Doctor, tell me, are you married? I'm a widower, actually. I'm so sorry. Do go on, please. Excuse my interruption. <clears throat> yes. Well,、uh, in any event,、uh, we would like to explore all the possibilities so that we can help you. All the possibilities, Doctor. That sounds alluring. 
Are you sure my delusion, as you call it, might not be some form of sexual aberration? Perhaps I am like a black widow spider killing my mates. <clears throat> that sounds a little too Freudian for me. We know you don't have porphyria, but you may have a disease that hasn't been identified yet. Oh, do you think they'll name it after me? Perhaps they'll call it Anemia Casadoria. <laughs> have you found anyone yet to fill the void left by your late wife? It's a shame. People are so lonely. I get very lonely myself sometimes. I'd like to look at your eyes this evening. Oh, doctor, we've just met. I meant that I would like to examine them for uh, sensitivity. Oh, I don't think you'll ever meet anyone quite as sensitive as me, Richard. Uh, this is just a simple test for light sensitivity of the retina. Would you mind uh, focusing on this light? Anything you say. Excellent. Uh, I'll be giving you some instructions while you gaze at the light, so please stay quiet and relax. I promise this won't take very long. Is the light too bright? Yes. And now? Still too bright. How's this? That's better, but it's still a little uncomfortable. Now? Fine. Now, every once in a while you'll see a different colored light flash. I want you to tell me what color it is when you see it. All right. Let's begin. Blue. Green. Yellow. Green. Blue. Blue. Violet. Green. Blue. Violet. Yellow. Blue. Blue. Maria, you're quite relaxed now, aren't you? Yes. I'm going to count backwards from ten to one now. And when I reach one, you will be completely relaxed and aware only of the sound of my voice. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Maria? Yes. Why don't you tell me about your dreams? Not dreams. Conversations. Conversations with who? With the Dark Father. Who is he? He is the first of us, and he will be the last of us. What does he say to you? He commands me. I have called to you, my child, and you have answered. You are a loyal daughter. I am a loyal daughter. What do you wish of me? A small thing. I wish you to kill a mortal man. He has stumbled upon knowledge that I do not wish revealed. If this information reaches the world of Mortis, it might endanger many of our brothers and sisters. Who is this man that I will slay? You have but to give me his name. His name is Charles Stockton. He is an agent of the Federal Bureau 
escape from this place. They will hunt for me if they find I have disappeared. It is already taken care of. No one will know that you have left. If I succeed, will I be free of this place permanently? Be patient, daughter. In time, you will be released. Yes, father. All will be done as you say. So... Did you find this man and kill him? Of course. You had no problem leaving the hospital and finding him. The walls could not hold me. Tell me how you found and killed this person. He was easy to locate. I finally met him in a nightclub. He had fought with his wife earlier that evening and had left his house in anger. His thoughts were dark and easily turned. Such a simple man. You killed him that same night? No. The perfect opportunity had yet to present itself, and he seemed amusing. I decided I couldn't resist having some fun with the dear man. Each night, I left the cell he would meet me. He could not control himself. He could not resist. For weeks, I possessed him completely. His every thought, his every breath. Then, events turned, and I had to draw the game to a close. I was afraid this would happen. Really, it's for the best. You'd never be happy with me anyway. Charles, if we're to have only one last night together, let's go somewhere where we can be alone. I don't know if that's such a good idea, Maria. I can't keep lying to Tracy. I told her that I just had to check on some things at the office. I should get back. You won't have to worry about her, my darling. I'm certain of that. Settle the check and let's go. I don't know why we had to come all the way out here. It'll take forever to get back. Our last night together has to be special love. And the place has to be perfect. The stars. The delicious night air. Drink it in, Charles. Feel it caress you like a loving hand. Do you want me to put on some music? Of course not, darling. It will drown out the music all around us. The night has its own melody. But few ever hear it. You have to be part of the darkness to truly appreciate it. Part of the night? Maria, you have such an imagination. It's a wonder you aren't an actress or something. Oh, but I am an actress, Charles. A very good one. Oh, really? Yes. You see, Charles, every time I'm with you, I pretend that I'm human. <laughs> oh, that's rich, Maria. <laughs> I'm not joking, Charles. I've never been more serious. I'm a vampire. <laughs> oh, give me a break, Maria. I suppose you, you took me out here to, to bite my neck and, and drink my blood? How did you ever guess, you clever man? Mm, well, why don't you... 
come a little closer, Count Dracula. All right. Damn it! You did it! I don't believe it! I'm bleeding! Are you crazy? Sanity is merely a matter of perspective, Charles. Oh, God, look at this. Bleeding everywhere over my shirt. I'm not going to explain this. What were you thinking? Is this some kind of kinky game? Or is it just your jealousy? You aren't listening to me, darling. I'm afraid that you men just never learn. It's time, Charles. Time for you to die. Oh, you're you're crazy. <laughs> That's it. Oh, can't you see that I have to go back to Tracy? Oh. I didn't want to hurt you, Maria. You know, I, I'm sorry it had to be this way, but I just don't love you. You mortals in your love. Stupid man, I never loved you. I'm just a little girl, still playing with my food. Now come closer, darling. Let me kiss you again. Oh no, get the hell away from me. Charles, don't be difficult. borrowed your gun without asking. I hope you don't mind, my dear. Oh, my legs. Well, we can't have you running out on me now. And you did take the keys with you. God, why are you doing this to me? Oh, because I'm Tracy. Tracy, you've got to be joking. Do you still believe that I'm doing this because our affair is over? Oh, quite frankly, Charles, I couldn't care less. After all, do you get emotional over a burger and fries? <laughs> of course you don't. Your paltry male ego just can't accept the fact that I can be so indifferent to your charms. Maybe this will help. My last name is not Perez. It's Casador. Casador? They put you in an insane asylum. It's a charming little place in Maine, actually. All the doctors there are quite taken with me, and I can leave whenever I want to. Locks can't hold me, Special Agent Stockton. I must say, I don't see what they think is so special about you. You seem like such a small, insignificant man. Oh, is that why you picked me? Because I work for the Bureau? It wasn't my decision. Actually, I can't tell you how hard it was to resist finding more challenging prey. But orders are orders, and I was told that you know too much about a certain corporation. Oh, Moral Industries. What do you care about that? I oh. might say it's a family matter. I have to ask you one more thing, Charles. What? Will you hate me in the morning? I'll say no! Well, I guess you won't be around in the morning. Which do you like better at a funeral, Charles? Lilies or white roses? Oh, do be still. You'll ruin my new dress. It's a shame I had to shoot you. What a waste of good blood. So you drank his blood? Yes. What did you do with the corpse and the car? I left the body there, 
and drove the car to a place more convenient for my return to the sanitarium. And this is the reason behind your lack of appetite, because you just fed? Yes. How long ago was it that you killed him? Four nights passed. Will Stockton become a vampire now? No. There was no mingling of my blood with his. Have you heard from the Dark Father since you killed him? He will call again when he has use for me. Have you left your room since? No, not yet. When will you need to feed again? When I feel the thirst. Now, Maria, I am going to count backwards from ten to one. When I reach one, you will awaken, and you will be unaware of our conversation. You will remember only that you had an eye test. Ten. Nine. Eight. Yes. Good morning. I just wanted to tell you again how impressed I was with that hypnotic technique you used on Maria. It's interesting, isn't it? I learned it from a professor of mine in Oxford. He was quite an innovator. I hope her story will be helpful. It's a fascinating delusion. Absolutely fascinating. She truly believes that she could leave here and drink human blood. By the by, I asked Robert if she ever had disappeared from herself, just to be certain. What did he say? He looked at me as if I were mad myself. <laughs> I did some research on our case last night after the session. Something she had said struck a chord in my memory. Really? What was it? It took quite a while to find it, mostly because I was looking in the wrong file. The information was in someone else's file? Whose? Dermot's. Dermot O'Brien's? I didn't know of any connection between Maria and Dermot. Though there isn't, really. But they do have one thing in common. Both files make mention of Charles Stockton. Dermot mentioned him as a contact during one of our sessions. Oh, that's an odd sort of coincidence. Yes. Yes, it is. You have been committed to Hayward Sanitarium. Written, directed, and produced by Matthew Bocco and David Johnson. Executive producers Tom Hollicky and Tony Brewer. Sound design by John Weber. Engineering and Foley team led by John Weber and Richard Fish, including Tim Arnett, Dan McDevitt, Doug Black, John Young, and Dan Zadroga. Featuring Mike Kelleher, Diane Condrat, Andrew Peloso, Alexandra Aufterheide, Richard Fish, Mark Shad, Tom Hollicky, Lara Britton, David Johnson, Tim Arnett, Victoria Johnson, Matthew Bocco, Eric Rosser and Mark Federson, and Ginger the Dog. Studio facilities provided by Lodestone Productions and Razor Digital. Hayward Sanitarium is made possible by grants from Lodestone Productions and Razor Digital and the generosity of its cast and crew. Copyright 1992. Hayward Sanitarium is a last-minute production. 
Um, our guest today is Richard Fish. He is a audio guy who's been around for quite a while, has been in too many productions to name here. Um, you may, if you've been to National Audio Theater Festivals, have met him there. Um, you may have also heard um, some of the works he's been in. He also hosts a great radio drama show in Bloomington, Indiana, called the Firehouse Theater. It's on WFHB. Uh, used to run the Lodestone catalog or be involved in that. Um, historian for OTR, writer, director, everything else. Rich, welcome to the show. Hi, Fred. Thanks very much. It's delightful to be here. And, and I should also note that you're also now um, and had an acting performance in the uh, short documentary Theater of the Mind. Yes, that's right. The, uh, it was produced last year by uh, Georgia Southern University folks for, and uh, shown at the National Audience, the National uh, Association of Broadcasters Convention, the NAB Convention. That was, that was wild. That was television. What a concept. <laughs> well, this is weird, this thing that takes pictures in front of me. What's this doing here? Yes, yes, tiny little pictures as compared to the ones you have in radio. Yeah. Uh, which are huge, you know, <laughs> as big as you want them. The colors yeah. are better on radio, too. That's the feeling. So uh, there's a lot of stuff we could cover, Rich. Um, d- you know, going into your work, going into your you know thoughts. Um, you've written a lot of pieces, some of the, you know... Uh, uh, I guess scholarly type work about radio drama. You've contributed to that, but we're going to try and put our focus a little bit today on the National Audio Theater Festivals. That's something you've been involved with a lot. Do you want to talk a little bit about your history with NATF? Yeah, basically. Let me uh, first let you know a little bit more about how I got into this. I uh, grew up in New Jersey, and I did some acting and some uh, music, and was a musician and so forth in high school days. And when I got to college, I heard something that just inspired me and changed my life. It was just one of those things that happens. And the the thing that I heard was the Firesign Theater's very first album, their mm-hmm. first LP, called Waiting for the Electrician, or Someone Like Him, which came out around 1968, I believe. And I heard it, and about five minutes into Cut One on Side One, it was a little like Buddha sitting under the tree, and the light suddenly streams down. And I was just amazed. There was this moment that, that opened up the whole prospect of radio here. Uh, a voice said, Railroad's coming through right now. <laughs> and suddenly there was a whole steam engine pulling into the station. You know, It was like, wow, you can create a whole world with a few words and a sound. And uh, because I was a television kid, I don't remember radio theater as a boy. Uh, Didn't encounter it, really, uh, until later in life. And this really got me interested. I'd already done acting and was was, uh, into being a performer. And I was working at the student radio station in college at the time, being a DJ. And this was quite an inspiration. So I moved to Indiana, which is where I've lived ever since, uh, to study radio TV at Indiana University and uh, settled out here and began to actually do this sort of thing. Started a recording studio, produced radio theater things of sort, uh, you know, and recorded commercial stuff, uh, you know, on the side, making, trying to make a living. Uh, then comes the workshop. Back in 1979, about 10 years after my Uh, sort of uh, epiphany there, Um, I heard from somebody that uh, there was going to be this radio workshop thing in Missouri. Uh, 
It was in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, at this time, see, I was, I was just getting into helping the effort to start a community radio station here in Bloomington. That effort had actually begun in 1975, and people had been doing things to raise money and so forth. And I started getting involved to help with that in the late 70s. And I think it was in a connection with that somehow that I heard about this, because in Columbia, Missouri, is a community radio station which was already on the air by then, KOPN-FM. And it was their idea to start a radio workshop. Uh, Bill Wax and Jake Schumacher and some of these guys back then uh, were sitting around one day at KOPN, and, and uh, they had listened to some of the old programs from the 40s, I think, and they just kind of said, gee, wouldn't it be great if we could do some of this? That would be a lot of fun. And one thing led to another, and they came up with the idea of a workshop. And they managed to get two of the Firesign Theater fellows to come out for this workshop. That's the word I got. It. The workshop was, there was going to be a workshop, and David Osmond and Peter Bergman were going to be there. Uh, okay. And uh, more than that, Fibber McGee was going to be there. From Fibber McGee and Molly back in the 30s and 40s, which had, by that time, become one of my all-time favorite shows. During the 70s, I had uh, begun to collect old-time radio shows and, uh, and pay more attention to the field in general and so on. And so I couldn't stay away. Absolutely had to go there to, 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 to have a chance to meet these people and see what it was all about. Well, I went out and spent the week in Columbia, Missouri, and it was just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Now, looking back, they were everyone was inventing it as they went along. And uh, in a lot of ways, they had no idea what they were doing. But it was such a great week because of all the people that came. All these wonderful people showed up, some of them from there in Columbia and from around the country. And it was great to meet David and Peter, and they had some new production things to let us hear in advance of release. I was, you know, <laughs> that was just a superb thing. I was so stoked. Uh, Fibber McGee was there. He, Jim Jordan, his real name. Uh, he was 85 years old at the time, and his body wouldn't let him climb stairs anymore. But uh, we had a great conversation with him, and he came out when we did our show and made a little announcement at the beginning of the show on the air. So technically, I can say I was on the air once with Fibber McGee. How about that? I think <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Anyway, this this experience, I came back to Indiana just totally fired up. And I grabbed my friends, and I reached into my savings account, and we put on a show. Is that the one that we've uh, been hearing parts of, the Hayward Sanitarium? Is that the one? No, no, no. That's much later. What we did, we called it the big broadcast of 1980. Okay. And we put it on in the library auditorium downtown, and the only station we had to carry it was a cable-only station. Community radio was still, uh, if we'd only known it, 13 years away. Uh, but that uh, did, uh, we made it as a benefit for the community radio project, and we had a lot of fun. And we got a good response, uh, and 
it really helped to sort of put the community radio project over the top because at that point the process of doing all the research needed to get the license it had been and pay lawyers in washington and everything uh... it had been kind of a long road to hoe but they managed to finally get the application in mm. and it was rejected <laughs> we, we had to eventually uh... it was our third application that was finally accepted to the FCC. That's that's an, an, another story. Anyway, uh, I went back to this workshop the second year and the third year. I would I was like I was I was like I I, I want to go there every year. I think the third year that it happened, I had to miss because my business things here in Bloomington were were very very intense. And I just couldn't get away, and I've always sort of regretted that. The second year, the second of the workshops back in 1980, the, the special guest was Arch Obler, who did Lights Out and nice. many things, you know, in the old days. And and uh, he was he was terrific. I remember him as a being a a bantamweight kind of guy, and the airlines had lost his luggage. And he spent the first three or four days wearing a chartreuse jumpsuit and a maroon beret. <laughs> and uh, we had actually done one of his plays in the first, uh, the first workshop show. And uh, we did another one that year, and he was there, and it was wonderful to meet him. The year I missed, Hyman Brown was the guest. And you should interview someone else about him, someone who remembers. What I heard the following year was that he was highly knowledgeable, but very set in his ways as far as production technique went. And the workshop was always into trying to experiment with things. Because the, the essence of the workshop is that it is a, a week-long series of classes and seminars and workshops on all the different aspects of audio theater how to write it, how to act it, how to produce and direct, even packaging and marketing and things like that. Uh, it's all fair game, you know. And then everybody uh, goes from thing to thing, and, there, and usually there are several things going on at once. So you have to make choices. And then, after hours, as it were, uh, an entire two to two and a half hour show is put together. And that caps the week on the final night. It's it's a crazy week, you know. Radio, 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 and no sleep. It's wonderful. The best part about it always is the people who come. I don't know what it is about radio theater, audio theater. It seems to attract the nicest folks. I kept coming back to this workshop, and in all the years, I've only missed two of them. That. Uh, that third one and the one and one as it happens last year, but I'm going back this year. It uh, after a while, after I'd been there as a participant for a few times, they asked me to come on to the staff and start teaching people. <laughs> and after a while, I also worked it up to producing the show, which I did uh, for a few years back in the late '80s. And uh, so over the years, I've done almost everything on this event. The other uh, point is that uh, things took a turn in the 1990s uh, when the event split off from KOPN 
and changed its name. It was the Midwest Radio Theater Workshop, and in, I think it was 95, it became the National Audio Theater Festivals. And uh, the, uh, the workshop is one of their annual events. It's a nonprofit organization. So as I say, I've been there all these years, and it always is a battery charger for me. When I come home, I'm, uh, I'm more energetic than when I left, even though we have just worked ourselves half to death for a week. Mm. Yeah, And uh, I understand, now you, usually you've been to many of them. You were there when I was, um, I was in 2007. Um, I understand mm-hmm. you've got roped into teaching this year's festival. How'd that happen? Uh, yes, well, that was delightful. I'd, uh, it was, I wasn't sure. I had uh, been on, the, I was on the staff continuously for something like 15 or 16 years or more. And eventually I was rotated off because they were, uh, they had so many people they were dealing with uh, that had been attracted over the years to this event who were highly qualified and they were trying to juggle the staff. A, a fine idea. So I hadn't, uh, I haven't been, uh, asked back to teach, oh, it's been five years or so. But this year, I got a call from Sonia James, the executive director, about a month ago. She said, well, we're still putting this one together on the fly, and are you available to come out? And I said, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still uh, talking to Sonia about uh, exactly uh, where I'm going to teach. I'm one of those folks who can kind of fill in whatever is needed. If you, if you need somebody to teach voice acting, I can do that, but I can talk about directing or writing or whatever as well. So uh, I said, let me be your backstop. Cool. Now, uh, so that there, there's a lot to it. And you, you said sort of like the, you touched on kind of the biggest element for you is, is the people. Any, any other parts about NADF, part of the experience you'd like to really impress upon people who are considering or maybe on the cusp of uh, headed out to uh, the workshop in Missouri? Oh, yes. Yes, I think there's a very important point here. I've been to lots of conferences and workshops and things in various ways over the years in various aspects of the publishing world and this and that, and those are all fine. But this is the only such event I've ever even heard of that makes you do it as well as learn about it. The mm-hmm. fact that everybody has to get together and work and rehearse and improvise and put together a live broadcast and a very ambitious and extensive live broadcast, too, uh, in just a week, that would be enough to occupy everybody's time even if they didn't do anything else. Uh, but the fact that on the final night, we actually get together and do it mm. is an important difference between this workshop and almost any other professional association meeting I've ever heard of or convention or whatever, because it's not just talking about it. There's plenty of that, but you do it, and it's enormous fun. It really is. It sometimes has gotten pretty crazy as far as how much work it is over the years. Oh, I could tell you stories for hours. But it's great fun, and it really kind of puts the seal on everything you've done. It means that people leave the event and go home and are really ready to go. They're fired up. Over the years, it's now, this is the 30th year since the first one happened. There may have been a couple missed over the years or 
something like that, because I don't think this is officially the 30th workshop. But uh, it was 30 years ago this fall that it started. And over those years, we have seen groups and people around the country start, who have attended the workshop, go home and start something happening themselves or fire up somebody else to start it. And uh, groups in, in uh, connected groups connected with colleges or independent theater groups and so on. And just the level of interest uh, has greatly risen. All kinds of things have started to be produced. And, in fact, the art form is having a considerable renaissance these days. And I think in the United States, the workshop had a lot to do with that. Really did. Has. Is. That's not, it's, uh, don't forget <laughs> yeah, past tense. You want to you push it to the next level. You want to help make it happen. Go out to uh, Missouri. That's the message. Yeah, it's not only a place to learn how. It's a place to meet people. It's this wonderful people network from all over the country. And I think... You know, you, you, we talked about me a little bit at the beginning. Really, when you come down to it, I'm just the luckiest kid on the block. Because here I got inspired and charged up by some of the things I had heard. And I got the chance to meet and work with those actual people and a whole raft of people around the country who are doing wonderful work on their own. Fred, you are a particularly good example of just that. You know, if it hadn't been for the workshop, you and I would not have met. Mm-hmm. This this conversation would not be happening. Yeah, no, and there's you know tons of other other things. You know, I was at a point where I was trying to you know how do how do I get a professional sound? How do I take it to the next level? And Natif was certainly a big part in in getting some of those skills, getting some of the ideas, and talking to people who uh, who've been there. And, and uh, you know. Uh, you, you're never going to find more approachable, talented people. You know, one of the first people I met coming off the plane was Tom Lopez. I'm like, what? <laughs> you're, you're who? Tom. <laughs> oh, boy, Tom. I know. Meeting Tom Lopez, I didn't know anything about Tom when I uh, first came to the workshop. I encountered him myself through the workshop. Oh, it was a while back. Uh, but, yeah, he's a genius. He is a really brilliant guy and one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. Just a, a just a wonderful person, and uh, that you know. Uh, so every year when you go to the workshop and you go back, every year there's all these wonderful friends that you haven't seen in a while, and a whole bunch of new friends to make, mm-hmm. because all these new people come every year, and and uh, and there's you know the ones who've been there before. It's become a lot, in a lot of ways, like a family. And I think I give David Osmond special credit for this. For the first about 15 years of the event, David was there every year and came to be a, uh, a bit of a pater familius to the whole thing. And he kind of put his, his uh, personality and stamp on the uh, event just by example, really. And the 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 family like connections that the people make uh, mostly the people who come and and uh, leave with a whole bunch of new friends and nowadays you know well uh, when this thing started nobody had ever heard of email yeah 
And now uh, you keep touch with people all the time, uh, even daily sometimes. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's certainly an experience that must have changed, you know, obviously changed your life quite a lot. Um, and, of course, you're still doing live performances in your own life um, with the uh, WFHB. Uh, you did a performance back in Christmas. I think there was one in March, and there's yet another one coming up. Yes. Oh, you've, you've handed me the plug. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, this Saturday night, June 13th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be going live on the air and on the web from a converted, uh, a renovated vaudeville theater here in cool. Bloomington, Indiana. It's called. It's now called the Buskirk Chumley Theater because Buskirk and Chumley gave the money to renovate it. But it is really an old vaudeville theater. It's really nicely set up, and uh, we. The, the the station WFHB really has an interest in radio theater, uh, especially recently. And what's what's marvelous for me, especially, is that this isn't my doing. I help. I'm involved, mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't my idea. It was it spontaneously came out of the station. A fellow named Mike Kelsey, a uh, a fine uh, volunteer radio DJ. Uh, host uh, who, who you know runs his own business on the side that has nothing to do with radio uh, got the idea to do some of this a year or two ago and uh, took it to us uh, we have a new station relatively new station manager Will Murphy who liked the idea and uh, they came to me and said can you help and of course I said yes and uh, we have tried to do various things and we're trying to work up a schedule of doing four live shows a year and uh that this is now this is all a volunteer effort there's a little bit of money that comes in from sponsorships and from ticket sales and so forth and we can afford to pay some of the musicians and performers a bit but mostly for everybody it's a volunteer effort but it's great fun we have the show coming up on saturday at eight o'clock that's eastern time new york time and uh it's uh, well. We've been working hard on it. Uh, it's been. It was a very crowded rehearsal last Sunday, with all the elephants and the tap dancers, and uh, the fireworks, and uh, we were and uh, the arrangements for shooting our beautiful Cunningham out of a cannon. Uh, it's 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 quite a production here, and uh, we really have a wonderful talent pool here in Bloomington. It's the home of Indiana University and the Jacobs School of Music which is uh, rated above Juilliard now in uh, various ways and has world worldwide connections. And so we have lots of talent in this area, and we uh, make use of that. Our shows tend to be comedy sketches and plays and uh, musical performances that showcase various people from, from this area. Uh, and it's it's great fun. The other thing that's happening in it is very interesting because, in a sense, when we do a show now, it never stops broadcasting. Uh, what we do is the show is recorded, and we take the recording and put it up on the website at wfhb.org. Our last two shows are up there now, and this one will get up there as soon as we can get it done. And you can go there and click to hear it anytime. So back in the 1940s, I have talked to 
people who were of that era, including Norman Corwin, and they all agree that they thought of what they were doing as ephemeral. Hmm. You go on the air, you do your performance, the the uh, red light goes out, and it's out and gone and gone away forever. Right. Well, that wasn't true. <laughs> so many of the shows and the broadcasts from the 30s and 40s were recorded, and the recordings preserved, Thank goodness. and now are widely distributed. Those shows didn't go away. They're still in existence. And so when we do a show today of any sort, uh, it's, it's a kind of a permanent thing. And moreover, the World Wide Web, which was not what it is today, even 10 years ago, much less 20, uh, the World Wide Web has opened up uh, hundreds of millions of people, even if you just stay within the English-speaking community, since our shows are in English, uh, it's, we have audience, uh, potential audiences of hundreds of millions that we didn't have even a few years ago. All of this is so new, I don't really know where it's all going. It's, it's like uh, we have caught a wave here, and uh, we will hope, it, uh, hope to get to shore without uh, you know, being conked on the head by our surfboard. <laughs> It's it's really something we're all inventing it as we go along. Yeah, and and you can do it well, and you can meet people of like minds by heading out to Missouri. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. There is definitely still time to get in on it this year, and natf.org is the website. And uh, this is a whole lot of fun and a way to meet people and get into. Uh, an area of endeavor, an art form, that I think has really tremendous potential. The uh, workshop shows that because it's been able to do some marvelous things, and so have the people who've come to the workshop, been able to do some fabulous things without having huge resources behind them. This is not a field where you need to be a network or a giant movie studio or something like that to marshal large amounts of money or anything to do stuff. In audio theater, you can do world-class work on an infinitesimal budget. It's remarkable, but it's true. Now, you asked about Hayward Sanitarium earlier. I did. That, that is a great example of, of this, and it does relate to the workshop. Back in 1992, I stuck my head into an improv theater group over on the college campus, Collins Improv, bunch of kids in there, uh, college students. They were doing freeze and replace and these uh, improv games and throwing each other around the room. And I stood up and I said, look, I have a recording studio and I do this. Well, gee, I mean, before television, there was, there was like radio. And I mean, you know, I had to figure like, how do I explain this? Well, they practically trampled me to get into the studio and started doing some things, and after only, I think the third time they showed up, they brought with them a script for a half-hour drama. Not a comedy piece, a drama. And I looked at it, and it was good. It was actually very good. And I said, why don't we try and do this? So we did, and when we heard the result, everybody was like, gee, we did that? It, it sounded good, so we did another. 
and it came out even better. At least we thought so. I sent those off to uh, Andy Trudeau, again, because of the contacts I'd made over the years through the workshop. I knew Andy, and he knew me. He was running, uh, what was it, uh, cultural programming, they called it, at National Public Radio, which means that he was in charge of NPR Playhouse. So I sent these off to him, and he came back to me saying, "Richard, these are great, but we can't. But it's a continuing story, and I can't just run two episodes. Can you? Can you? You know, make the rest of the episodes here. Why can you do this? Well, here's this bunch of college kids. They've done a couple things, and instantly they're invited to national public radio. They were fired up." We eventually produced 10 half hours of this program called Hayward Sanitarium. It ran on NPR, and then a couple of years later they asked to bring it back, and it ran again at, at NPR's request. It sold on cassettes and CDs. It, uh, I think it may still be maybe out there on the web. I think Dave Johnson had a website, one of the authors had a website where you could download the episodes. You have to Google Hayward Sanitarium and see what comes up. But the essential budget for this program was zero. <laughs> Nobody got paid. We did have a few expenses along the way. We, but I donated, my, my studio donated the recording studio time. And uh, the the group eventually turned itself into a nonprofit proper nonprofit corporation, and I could write off my donations to them. No, we just sort of did it on a budget of nothing, and it's reached, I'm sure, at least a couple of million listeners, and continues to do so. I think it was a really good effort, and the people that did it were enormously talented. This was just one of those how lucky can I get experiences. Because with all of my work in the field, I didn't write this. I didn't direct it. I didn't produce it. I didn't even engineer it. They let me act once in a while, which kept me happy. But mostly I just stood around with my mouth open going, wow, look at him go. <laughs> so this was a, a fabulous experience. And again, uh, the workshop, I inveigled a number of them to go out to the workshop during the time we were producing these. And they went out and they had a ball and they did wonderfully well in the shows. Uh, very talented folks and so on. It was, uh, it was a great time. And over the years, I've, I've been very lucky to work with some famous people, some very well-known people, uh, because of the workshop, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, classically, Norman Corwin. Right, right. I, I recall we were we were sort of chatting about this, and you um, there became this. We hold these truths uh, revitalization in the mid '90s. Is that is that all related back to this story? Yes, it is, because uh, it's a very strange and wonderful little story. Back when I was producing the show in the late '80s, I had my large collection of old time radio, and when I would get the scripts for the show, this would be three or four months ahead of the workshop. I would look through them, and I would try and find a recording in my collection that was something like the show that was going to be put on, same genre at least, or something like that, and send it to the director. Hey, here's something from uh, uh, in that vein, and maybe you get some ideas from it. All right. In 1988, David Osmond was directing a play called Heaven as Usual. I got the script in, and it was a, a heaven as a giant bureaucracy idea. Uh, you know, the phone would ring, the secretary picks it up, and she says, God's office, 
that sort of thing. <laughs> anyway, I looked through my collection to see what was similar, and I happened upon a show that also had that idea, Heaven as Bureaucracy, and it was called The Odyssey of Runyon Jones. I, you know, I just stumbled across that. That is a lovely story. That is a fabulous story. It, of course, is a Norman Corwin original from 1941. And uh, I took, you know, took a, uh, made a copy of the cassette and sent it off to David. And the phone rings about three or four days later. It's David Osmond said, Richard, Richard, this tape you sent me. My God, he said, this is the show. He said, when I was eight years old, I heard this, and it made me want to go into radio. <laughs> now, that's, that was a wild moment. Here's the guy who had made the stuff that made me want to go into radio. And suddenly he was connecting back with the moment that he had had that made him want to go into it. He wanted to play Runyon Jones when he was a little kid. <laughs> well, he said, I have to do this play next year. And we had no idea at that time about Norman. None of us, neither of us knew him or anything like that. We sort of knew he was still around, but not where. David hunted him up, asked for his permission. Norman said, certainly. And so we produced Odyssey of Runyon Jones at uh, MRTW's 10th anniversary in 1989, which won... Uh, that show won national awards and things like that. It was a wonderful year. When we were there that year, I had a book of Corwin's plays that I had found, and, and uh, one night we were sitting back over drinks at the bar, and I was leafing through this book, and I said, looky here, here's one of Corwin's plays. It was done in 41, and in two years, it's going to be the 50th anniversary for this. Why don't we do it at the workshop? And it was a play called We Hold These Truths. Well, little did I know. This was like the guy, I am, I am the kid who kicked the pebble off the cliff that started the avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, really, what happened, uh, I could go, I could tell this story at, at great length, but I'll condense it here. Essentially, it was decided, uh, people liked the idea right away, it was decided to do it, to, to try and do it as an independent production outside of the workshop. And over the next year and a half, uh, something like 70 grant applications were turned down to, to do a production of this. Norman, when he was talked, when Norman was talked to about this, he said, well, I'd love to have another presentation of this, but it's too old-fashioned and needs to be rewritten. So he says, I'll do it, but you'll have to pay me, which is what he learned in the 40s, and, and he's absolutely right. Anyway, they, it was necessary to raise money for a production. And Norman was at least on board, and couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Finally, in 1991, the money was raised. Dave Osmond's wife, Judith Walcott, and Mary Beth Kirshner, who worked at uh, the NPR flagship station in Washington, D.C., managed to get basic financing and get the program off the ground. And uh, you see, this is the birthday of the Bill of Rights. That's what it's about. An incredible program. Back in 1941, uh, the origin of it is rooted in American history. 
Back in 1941, in the summer and fall of 1941, Pearl Harbor had not happened yet. We were not at war, but the rest of the world was. And obviously, it was a dangerous time. President Roosevelt noticed that the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights, of the day the Bill of Rights became law, was going to come up soon. And he said, Won't, can't we make noise about this? Let's do something special to draw attention to this. And Norman Corwin ended up getting the call to be the guy who did that. That was kind of the position he was in back then. And it was a radio show, because that was the hot medium of the day. It was the first time ever that all of the networks had broadcast the same thing simultaneously. Never happened before. And what they didn't realize in 1941 was that the date on which the Bill of Rights became law happens to be December 15th. And in 1941, that was only a week after Pearl Harbor. So when the program went on the air, it was a major production right at the start of the war. And Roosevelt spoke. The, the, they went from Hollywood. Norman directed a fabulous cast. It was Jimmy Stewart and Lionel Barrymore and Marjorie Maine and uh, Edward G. Robinson and Walter Houston and on and on uh, from Hollywood. Then they switched to Washington. Roosevelt spoke and they switched to New York and Stokowski conducted the national anthem. And it was a tremendous success. That was the program, the script of which I had chanced upon in this book. And when Norman, when the money came through, Norman rewrote it, and it was redone. No presidential address this time. It was expanded to a full hour and expanded to include all of the amendments to the Constitution, not just the first ten. And it was broadcast... December 15th, 1991, was a satellite feed from uh, our studio where we were working in Hollywood to every radio network in the United States, both public and commercial, plus the BBC and the CBC, and maybe some others I've forgotten. Hmm. It was an, an astonishing event. I was called uh, uh, on to go to Hollywood and act as associate producer. Um, that requires a little explanation. In Hollywood, they spell it associate producer, but they pronounce it gopher. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's basically what I was. I was a sort of a blur with a clipboard doing whatever I could to help. But uh, once again, a huge cast of stars leaped at the opportunity to work with Norman Corwin and to do radio. Mm. They love it. They had a wonderful time. I mean, it was uh, we had 40 major names in that program, uh, James Earl Jones and Tom Bosley and Bill Bixby and uh, Brenda Vaccaro came in and, uh, uh, you know, Ray Bradbury came in to act. Norman Lear came in as a performer. Uh... All of these amazing names, Edward Asner, you know, came in to be in this program and uh, on very short notice for very little money, 
They just wanted to do it. It eventually won a clutch of awards as well, including a silver gavel from the American Bar Association. And uh, it was a tremendous experience. And without the workshop, it would never have happened. That's the, that's the key. And furthermore, it led to Norman's programs, his older programs from the 40s, being rebroadcast on national public radio. And the success of those led to him getting a contract to make six new programs for national public radio. It brought him back into radio. And like I say, kick the pebble off the, uh, off the cliff and you start an avalanche. It's kind of what happened. It was an amazing experience. And this workshop, the National Audio Theater Festival's workshop in Missouri, as it is today, coming up here at the end of June, this is the kind of event where anything can happen and already has, you know. Okay. Well, killer, that is one hell of a testimonial, Rich, I have to say. <laughs> oh, I, I've got, st I, I, you haven't even scratched the surface <laughs> of the number of stories I could tell about the workshop and the crazy stuff that's gone on there over the years and the people that have come in and out. Sure. Enormous well, fun. Yeah, I would, I'd love to go deeper. This is as much time as we have today. But uh, thanks so much for your time, Rich. Um, huge pleasure. Of course, you can check out more on WFHB.org, NADF, uh, National Audio Theater Festivals, NATF.org. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just check it out. And, and maybe if you can't come this year, go next year. It is a great event. Wherever you are in your audio drama career, you'll get something out of it. Um, and, Rich, thanks so much for being on. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for being interested. Thanks for doing this. I hope to see you at the workshop here one of these years. Uh, maybe next year? We'll see. Maybe um, here in Bloomington? We, if, if, if it's in Bloomington, I'll be there. Um, I'll All be right. There. I might be there anyways. We'll see. <laughs> and that was Rich Fish. And if you do want to check out his live show, it is coming up this weekend. WFHB.org. Um, that will be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on June 13th. That's this Saturday. Uh, if you do miss it, it'll be up at WFHB.org uh, eventually for streaming. But if you have the chance to uh, get it now and hear it live, hey, there's nothing quite like hearing live radio, uh, live or streaming radio, whatever you can get it on. Um, so next week, we will be continuing our series focusing on audio artists um, with a native connection. The guy next week is uh, one of the top audio artists of all time. Tom Lopez, we're going to be focusing on some of his short pieces, two-minute and four-minute uh, clips, as well as trying to get Tom on the line to talk about um, a little bit about his experiences working in short audio and uh, what he thinks of the National Audio Theater Festivals. Don't miss going to the blog and podcast at radiodramarevival.com. All kinds of great stuff there. Of course, previous episodes of the podcast. Uh, this week, we have a great feature of Malleus. Thank you, Chris Duker, for uh, the True History of Magic Bullet interview with Alan Stevens. Um, that is not a guy you're going to hear about a lot on the web, uh, so do check him out. Uh, check out the interview at radiodramarevival.com. Um, and of course, while you're there, why not leave a comment or two, join in the conversation. You can also find us on iTunes, search for Radio Drama Revival. Um, that wraps up for this week, so until next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week.